Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, this is the first recording I've done from my new apartment. I moved a uh, just a while back and uh, I'm in a new place now and this is my first time recording from it. A fact I'm sure most of you don't give a single damn about, so I'm just going to talk about something that's maybe a little bit more interesting to some of you. It's tough to remember when. I want to say it was uh, a year ago or two years ago. It was something like that. I don't know. Uh, Michael Bailey released some episode of his show or another. It might have been Bailey's Batman podcast. It might have been views from the long box. But it was something. All right, I forget what. It was something. And his point, you know, what he said that I thought was kind of interesting was that he's kind of sick of finding out about all the behind-the-scenes type of stuff that happens with, you know, comics and movies and all these other things. It's just gotten to be a little bit tiresome for him. And honestly, it took me a little while to really connect to what he meant by that. I didn't really understand, you know, why that would be a burden. But, I don't know. Over the course of the last, I don't know, six months, maybe a year. I can kind of relate now. I've gotten to a point where I can sort of understand where he's coming from. You know, and a good example of that was when I was... You guys haven't heard it yet, but I've drafted notes for a lot of my uh, Smallville uh, retrospective uh, uh, series that I do for every eighth episode. And... I'm really fucking far ahead. All right, I don't know if I want to be specific as to how far ahead, but I've knocked out notes and stuff for retrospective episodes that you guys aren't going to hear for years. Now, these, these are just notes. I haven't recorded most of this stuff. These are just the notes, right? I just want to be clear on that. But when I got to the dreaded season four... Smallville, the dreaded season four. There are a lot of reasons why I call that the dreaded season four. And the reason for that is because the dreaded season four fucking sucks. Right? There's really no nice way to say it. It's I just don't like it. And one of the things that I kind of had to acknowledge was that there was some amount of behind-the-scenes bullshit. Now, believe me, I'll get to that when I finally do the... Uh, the retrospective for the dreaded season four. I'll get there in, in uh, due time. And when I do, you'll probably wish I hadn't. But anyway, that's all in the future. My point, though, is that some of the things that I had to say related directly to behind-the-scenes goings-on, right? And, well, fuck it. I'll just, in this one instance, I'll be specific. Basically, goings-on with uh, Margot Kidder, right? And... For those of you who don't remember, she basically had kind of a, uh, a meltdown about the way the producers of the show, which is to say Al Goff and Miles Miller, the way they handled the death of Christopher Reeve and, correspondingly, the death of Virgil Swan, the character that Christopher Reeve played on Smallville, right? I don't really remember too much of what her objections were or what you know what what all the drama was about i just remember that she shot her mouth off to basically anybody who'd listen 
that Al Goff and Miles Miller, they're just pieces of shit. You know, they're, this is cheap and exploitative and all these other things and, you know, fucking blah, 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 blah. It was ages ago. It's just, it's really tough to remember. And the reason for all of this is, you know, the, the, the reason behind it is she basically just had a meltdown. And so what, what ended up happening is they just killed her character off. You know, she said that she's not coming back to the show. Fuck them. And she's done. And so as a result of that, they decided basically they had no choice. They had to, they had to kill her off. And I got to that section of my notes in my Smallville retrospectives for uh, the dreaded season four. And it hit me. You know, this is one of those just ugly facts of life that nobody likes, but we just, we have to acknowledge that's what happened. It's, you know, and there's really no way not to talk about it. But honestly, it really doesn't have anything much to do with the story of Smallville during the dreaded season four. I mean, I mean, yes, it's important, ultimately, I guess, that, you know, that character died and, you know, and everything, but... There's a reason for that. There's a reason that Bridget Crosby, Margot Kidd's character, uh, got kick, uh, killed off. And the only way to really get there is, you know, if, is if you talk about, uh, you know, behind the scenes bullshit, right? And it just, when I was putting all of that together, it just it hit me that that stuff is just so tiresome. You know, I don't like talking about it. I don't like knowing about it. I resent the fact that 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 I've even heard all of this stuff and all the things that are going on and you know it's just it's it's really aggravating and I really do understand now where Michael Bailey's coming from whenever he said that this kind of thing is just it just gets tiresome after a while and you you get I guess you get to a, and maybe this is the point I guess you get to a, a point in life when all you really want to do is just enjoy the stories or not enjoy the stories you know but there's something to be said for not knowing how the how the hot dogs get made and i kind of i guess what i'm saying is there's there's a degree to which ignorance really is bliss you know and it doesn't necessarily help um help me talk about things or enhance my enjoyment of a story any story whether it's a movie or a comic book or or whatever it doesn't necessarily lend to my enjoyment to know that such and such direct, uh, director was a complete asshole, or such and such um, uh, penciler is is a total douchebag, you know. And it's just these are the sorts of things that I'm actually at a point in life now where I just I would rather fucking not know, you know. And so I guess there's, I mean really there's there's really no ending to this. It's just that's something that it's kind of been on my mind lately. It's and it's it's not really the kind of thing that I could turn into a complete episode as to, you know, how much I don't want to know about behind the scenes stuff, you know, going going on with uh any 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 media that I consume, whether it's Star Wars or Superman or, or, or whatever, you know, whatever my thing is, you know, I'm actually now to a point in life when I'm just kinda of done with that, you know? It's usually very negative and you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to get too specific because God knows that might really irritate the hell out of some people. But, you know, I just I look I look at the world around me right now, things that are happening in my country and everything. And I think we've got enough negativity, you know, knowing about all of the unsavory details and all the unpleasant things that have happened in comics or in movies or just fucking whatever. 
I'm just at a point now where I don't feel like I need that anymore. I don't need to know those things anymore. I don't really want to know those things. And in fact, you know, and and I have to say this, you know, this is actually... And just to kind of put it in perspective, you know, this is actually sort of a turnaround for me because there was a point when, dude, I loved learning all the behind the scenes, you know, dirty laundry, you know, um, you know basically, you know, what George Lucas had for lunch whenever he and Lawrence Kasdan developed the story for Empire Strikes Back, you know, just minutia like that. I don't know why, but there was a point when that kind of thing really fucking interested me. I don't know. And I don't have that anymore. And and I guess the the reason for that, like I said, is because so much of it is just unpleasant. So much of it is 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 really negative. And honestly, I'm I get, like I said, I just there's so much bad news going on in the world already, the world in general, and my country in particular. That it just kind of feels like this is. I for, I guess for the first time, I'm try I'm starting to treat media as escapist entertainment and that's actually kind of a new thing in my his- in, in my fandom really of anything but um you know it's just a, it, it's a new thing and so here we are so anyway there's no deeper meaning to any of this there's no uh i, I guess life-altering lesson or anything like that it's just i mean i guess it's just it's like anything else be careful when you go looking for the truth you just might find it Please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about Superman. A lot. Actually, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, but lately it's all Superman. You see, I've been up to my eyeballs in a miniseries that centers completely on Superman. This and... The next several episodes are going to be all about Superman. In fact, this is probably the biggest miniseries that I've ever attempted. But, of course, it's kicking ass because I run the best geek-related podcast to be found anywhere on the internet. So, I'm really not surprised. But anyway, the back of the trading card version of the story is that 
I've been spending tons of time going through all different kinds of Superman comics. But not just comics. I'll be talking about a hardcover in this very episode. Now, you might be wondering why I'm making such a big deal out of Superman right now. Well, isn't it obvious? This year is incredibly important because 2014 marks Superman's 76th anniversary. Well, I decided the best way to celebrate this momentous occasion is to use shitloads of episodes reflecting on Superman. I mean, think about it, man. 76 years. That's one hell of a milestone. So, if you ask me, it's logical to think that there's no better way to spend my time in 2014 than celebrating Superman's 76th anniversary. I shall repeat that. What I'm saying here is there's no better way and no better character to focus on in 2014 than Superman in geeking out over the fact that this year is his 76th anniversary. And this time out, I'm talking about Superman, the Sandman saga. But not just the story itself. Nope. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about the hardcover edition from the DC Library line of hardcovers called Superman Kryptonite Nevermore. The story is known by many names, you see. The two that I see used most of the time are the Sandman Saga and Kryptonite Nevermore. I prefer calling it the Sandman Saga, though, since Kryptonite ultimately plays only a very small part of the, uh, of the story in the grand scheme of things. But the Sandman is incredibly important to the story. Anyway, so... Without further ado, here's the summary of this bad boy, taken pretty much directly from Wikipedia, and then embellished and modified as only I can embellish and modify it. In 1971, DC attempted to revamp and streamline the Superman universe. Mort Wiesinger, the editor of the Superman titles, retired from his 30-year career at DC at the end of 1970. As he was a prolific editor, DC replaced him with four people. Mike Sikowski edited Adventure Comics and Supergirl. Murray Boltonoff edited Superboy, Action Comics, and Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. E. Nelson Bridwell edited Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. And Julius Schwartz edited World's Finest and Superman. The new editors streamlined the Superman mythos. Kryptonite, Imaginary Stories, Mr. Mixius Pitalik, Bizarro, Crypto, Jimmy Olsen's Elastic Lad Stories, Lois Lane's Reptile Girl Stories, and Titano would all be removed and forgotten. After a series of house ads, including two-page uh, center spreads, DC published Superman number 233 in January 1971. With the tagline, The Amazing New Adventures of Superman, above the Superman title, and the displayed number one, which was actually part of the slogan, number one best-selling comics magazine, 
It led to some people believe that the book was actually called The Amazing New Adventures of Superman, number one. Writer Denny O'Neill, who was already well known for his, for his work on the Batman titles and Green Lantern, Green Arrow, hard-traveling heroes, as well as penciler Kurt Swan and inker Murphy Anderson, began the Sandman saga in Superman number 233. In fact, for my money, this is the moment when Superman entered the Bronze Age. The story begins with Superman number 233, which is entitled, Superman Breaks Loose. A scientist is trying to create an engine powered by kryptonite when the experiment goes incredibly fucking wrong. Incidentally, those of you who resented kryptonite being used as a power source in the TV show Smallville are cordially invited to read this issue and kiss my ass. But anyway, the resulting explosion not only kicks Superman's ass, it transforms every kryptonite sample in the world into lead. On top of all that, Clark Kent is forcibly removed from the Daily Planet news office and transferred to the WGBS-TV news broadcast station. Meanwhile, a sand creature is formed in the desert where the kryptonite-fueled engine exploded. Superman number 234, entitled How to Tame a Wild Volcano, finds Superman struggling to find a way to save a group of islanders from a volcano that's about to explode. His situation is complicated by the Sandman creature, who first appeared in the previous issue, draining some of his power. Superman number 235, the sinister scream of the Devil's Harp, finds Superman squaring off with Ferlin Nixley, who's in possession of a magic harp that grants him his every wish. When Nixley wishes for superpowers, Superman loses his abilities one by one. The Sandman ultimately saves Superman from certain death. Superman number 236, entitled Planet of the Angels, finds Superman beating the piss out of a bunch of angels and demons, only to find out it was a big case of mistaken identity, and the demons aren't really demons at all, and the angels are actually alien criminals from some planet or another that the non-demons were searching for. Superman number 237, entitled The Enemy of Earth, finds the Sandman affecting Superman to the degree that whatever Superman touches is instantly gigantified. Meanwhile, Lois is in South America doing a story about killer army ants when her plane is forced down. Superman tries to stop the ants, but only manages to gigantify a few of them. Making brief physical contact with the Sandman restores Superman's touch at the expense of draining yet more power from him. Superman, number 238, entitled Menace at 1000 Degrees, finds Superman has lost so much power that now he can barely fly anymore. In fact, all of his powers have been diminished. So, of course, Lois finds herself sucked into a hostage situ situation, so Superman has to go undercover and infiltrate the hostages. Lois eventually forces Superman's hand, though, and Superman's barely able to save the day. Superman number 240 is entitled To Save a Superman. Superman's reduced power levels make him less effective at stopping disasters, and people are starting to notice and openly talk shit to him. Ching offers to help Superman fully restore his powers. A gang of crooks attack Superman in the middle of Ching's ritual, so Superman beats the shit out of his attackers without his superpowers. Superman number 241 is entitled The Shape of Fear. 
Superman beats the shit out of his attackers without his superpowers, and Ching has to persuade Superman to, into undergoing the completion of the magical procedure in order to restore his powers. Superman's ghost tracks down the Sandman and pulls back all his superpower. The power goes straight to Superman's head, though, and he starts acting like a complete dill hole. It eventually comes out that Superman's suffering brain damage from his injuries during his fight with those crooks when he was completely human and lacking his superpowers, and now the brain damage is made permanent by having his powers restored. Ching finds the Sandman to send him after Superman to take back some of the powers, but the Sandman has opened a, por a portal back to his home dimension of Quorum, out of which has come another wraith who takes possession of a statue of an Oriental War Demon and brings it to life. The Oriental War Demon beats the shit out of Superman and drags him off. Superman number 242 is entitled The Ultimate Battle, and finds Superman facing off with the demon as he sucks two-thirds of his power back from it. The Sandman decides he wants to be Superman from now on, and the only way to do that is to kill the real Superman. He's stolen a bit of Superman's DNA, and now he wants to steal Superman's life from him and take over as Superman. Incidentally, those of you who bashed on the Smallville version of Bizarro are cordially invited to read this issue and kiss my ass. After the Oriental War Demon has been dispatched, it comes out that Superman and the Sandman can't make physical contact with each other, or else there will be a huge explosion and there's no telling if either of them will even survive. Ching offers to cancel the effects of the atomic charge so that Superman and the Sandman can beat the fuck out of each other, and thus a huge battle ensues and it destroys all life on the planet. Superman freaks out over this until Ching says it's, it's all been in his head. None of it was real. Ching offers to give Superman back all of his power, but Superman refuses because that's too much power for anybody to possess. And so, the Sandman agrees to return to Quorm, while Superman broods quietly to himself. So, what did I think? Well, the story itself is okay. This was Superman's entry into the Bronze Age, and it's worth mentioning that a lot of story elements introduced here stuck around for a long time. And that includes Clark Kent working as a television news anchor, and that stuck around for something like at least 10 years or something like that. And the WGBS television station provided a new supporting cast with Morgan Edge and later Steve Lombard and Lana Lang. But the Daily Planet supporting cast of Perry, Jimmy, and Lois could be brought in at any time and for any reason. So pretty much it's the best of both worlds. But... What didn't stick around a whole lot after the end of this story was Superman's reduced power level. And that's kind of strange because the purpose of this story was to drain Superman's powers by one-third. The concept here would be to eliminate stuff like planet juggling and instant trips to the other side of the universe. Basically, Denny O'Neill's plan was to somewhat return Superman to at least some elements of, of his Golden Age history. And 
as a result of this storyline, the idea would be that Superman had become leaner, somewhat wiser, and definitely a more human character. On top of all that, Kryptonite could no longer be used as a crutch by lazy writers who basically just didn't want to think up new ways to challenge Superman. The explosion from Superman number 233 didn't preclude the possibility of more kryptonite coming to Earth. It just meant that kryptonite already on Earth couldn't be used as too frequent a trope for writers. Now, as, I guess in terms of aftermath, after the conclusion of the Sandman saga, O'Neill left the book, and so in the end, DC somewhat pulled the plug on this new incarnation of Superman. And Carrie Bates came in to script Superman, beginning with Superman number 243. DC ultimately followed the advice of fans who were more interested in seeing cosmic conflicts rather than the more earthbound type of stuff we saw in the Sandman saga. Still, I think it should be emphasized, in case it wasn't clear yet, that while the new quote-unquote Superman from the Sandman saga still occasionally popped up, O'Neill's vision of Superman pretty much disappeared after the final issue of the Sandman storyline. But, many of the concepts introduced during this era, such as a powered-down Superman, Inner Gang, the Cadmus Project, the Guardian, Darkseid, and other things would all be used later on during the Burn Age version of Superman, which began with the Man of Steel miniseries in 1986. But, as to the story at hand, I gotta tell you, I really dig parts of it. Um, take the art, for example. The, the covers were mostly drawn by Neil Adams, and I really shouldn't have to add anything to that. The issues themselves were penciled by Kurt Swan and inked by Murphy Anderson. Now, I reserve the right to be wrong here, but if I'm not mistaken, this was their first time working together, and man, oh man, what a team. Swan and Anderson perfectly complement one another's styles. I, look, if nothing else, I'm happy to talk about this story because Kurt Swan kicked so much ass with it. The times I've had to talk about Kurt Swan's art in this podcast on previous occasions, I usually had less kind things, to put it, just to put it nicely. I had less kind things to say, because Swan just wasn't on his A-game on those occasions. But, man, I mean, he nails it this time. And Murphy Anderson helps him along the way. I mean... The two go together beautifully. The story itself, though, I don't know. I guess I don't mind Superman being humanized. But what bugs me is when he's shown to be unstable. And in part 7 of this story, which is Superman number 240, To Save a Superman... That's pretty much what we see. Superman throws this big hissy fit because people are talking shit to him. And keep in mind, he's not suffering from brain damage yet. And he has this little just fucking temper tantrum that people are, 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 are talking smack openly. And 
I don't know. The Superman I like, he'd just let bullshit like that slide and just try harder next time. In fact, the entire moral of this story seems to be that Superman is unworthy of such vast, godlike power. And that's why he allows the Sandman to keep one-third of his powers. Apparently, Superman thinks he can be two-thirds omnipotent, and that's no problem, but full omnipotence just shouldn't be on the table. Of course, this overlooks how Superman's been that powerful pretty much his whole fucking life, and it really hasn't been a problem. But I guess we're just supposed to ignore that. Anyway, you know, look. Look, maybe it's small potatoes, but, I mean, damn it, that's how I feel. And I guess since we're on the subject, there's, there's another pretty big problem going on in this, uh, in this reprint. And I mean specifically this reprint. It's a nice, fancy hardcover edition with a neat little introduction by Denny O'Neill. And then the story itself is printed on some pretty high quality and nice paper stock. The problem here is that these seem to be the original negatives that someone apparently dragged out of the archive and then just slapped directly onto the page. There's been no care taken to remaster and recolor the art. And so the end result looks incredibly shitty, especially for such an expensive volume. Colors are so far away from their intended look that, honestly, words fail me. On some pages, the reds are they're more orange, and I, on other occasions, they're more maroon. Yellows sometimes veer orange or even green in a few cases. And Now, I want you, I want you to understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I wanted the art to be recolored using modern technology because I think that'd look really fucking weird. But it's common these days for DC to reprint material from the 70s using very flat, very basic color palettes that don't call all that much attention to themselves, but they do serve more or less what the colorist originally intended. In fact, that very thing already exists, at least for Superman number 233, because that issue was also reprinted in the Superman in the 70s collection, and that looked fucking great. The art had clearly been recolored, but it was this kind of flat, simple coloring job that just might make you forget that the comic probably didn't look this good back when it was first published. Now, in case I'm not being clear here, if DC had used the shitty original negatives and charged a very low price point for a reprint of the Sandman saga, I wouldn't have complained. If they colored the art like they did in Superman in the 70s and charged a medium price point for it, I wouldn't have complained. If they went full to the nines and completely modernized the coloring job and charged top dollar like they did with this shitty version, I wouldn't have complained. What bugs me is this 
this fucking lazy approach of using shitty looking negatives and charging top dollar for it. And I, no, all right? You can use shitty negatives or you can charge top dollar. You cannot do both. So, if you're interested in this story, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I can't and won't encourage you to purchase this shitty DC library reprint, but the original issues probably cost more than this hardcover would. And as far as I know, this DC library hardcover is the only time the Sandman saga has been reprinted in full. So, fuck, I mean, what's that leave? Torrents? I don't know. I'm, I'm, normally, I'd never condone something like that, but if DC isn't going to get off their lazy asses and do the right thing and offer a offer a quality product at a, at a good price. Well, guys, there are other options out there. So, anyway. Well, anyway, so that's that. Time for a break. Be right back after these messages. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. <laughs> 
One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, and welcome back. Basically, I've got a metric fuckton of feedback to, that I need to go through here, so uh, I guess without further ado, here we go. Uh, this first email, uh, this comes from uh, Tom Panneries. Now, for those of you who don't know, and you should know, but for those of you who don't know, uh, Tom Panneries is the host of In Country, which is a podcast all about... <clears throat> the uh, comic book series, The Nom. Um, he also does a, uh, another series that's called Taking Flight, which is basically a sort of from Robin to Nightwing kind of, a, kind of a podcast. And then there's Pop Culture Affidavit, which is all about Tom basically picking out a particular item of pop culture and then just doing an entire show about it. And, uh, that one is, of all the shows that he does, that one is by far my favorite. I think it's awesome. But really... All of his shows are great, and you all need to be listening to them. But anyway, uh, Tom's email is titled Kingdom Come Episode and is dated March the 15th. Tom writes, Your Holiness, forgive me for being behind on your podcast, but I just finished up the Kingdom Come episode and wanted to write in and say that I truly enjoyed it. I've always been a fan of this story. It's not one that I hold, uh, hold in my top ten by any means, but I enjoyed hearing the perspective of someone who's not as enamored of it as so many appear to be. I'm going to put this on pause and just say, yeah, um, I do I do kind of have a different uh, point of view about the story, I think, than, than you know, a whole lot of people do, but and that's not, that's not to be, you know, uh, controversial or anything like that. It's really just whether it's, it's I guess, the story of it, or for that matter, even the art. In fact, in a strange kind of way, especially the art. I just don't get it, you know? I, I don't understand where the hype is on this. And, I mean, usually, with a lot of comics, especially the ones that, you know, get touted as, you know, the greatest that there ever was and all that kind of bullshit... You may not agree, but a lot of times you can kind of see where other people are coming from on that, right? With Kingdom Come, I just don't get it at all. It, the, the thing always, it's always kind of left me cold, and anyway, I just, I don't understand. But anyway, to get back into Tom's email here, he says, You wondered aloud why this is such a popular story, and it got me to thinking. Not just about Kingdom Come, mind you, but about quite a number of all-time greatest, uh, quote-unquote, all-time greatest stories. The ones that repeatedly end up on top 10, 20, 50, 100, or whatever other lists. 
Here's my non-expert, non-authoritative answer. First, as far as Kingdom Come goes, it's Alex Ross. Yes, I see the same flaws as you do, but Marvels had come out two years earlier, and that had been a blockbuster. I remember hearing that Alex Ross was doing a DC story and being really excited. And since this is so pretty and majestic in a number of places, it gets held up. Second, Kingdom Come was DC finally starting to get escape velocity from what we constantly deride as the 90s. Nightfall, the death and return of Superman, and other storylines aside, they were always lagging behind Marvel and Image, and by this time, were cra starting to craft a better 90s-free identity for themselves. Put frankly, it was an anti-90s book at a time when an anti-90s book was sorely needed. I know good timing does not a classic make, but that has to have something to do with it. I'm going to put this on pause again and say, you know, I guess I can see that aspect. You know, it's, I guess it's kind of hard for me to remember, for me to remember what things were like when this story came along, but, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that it, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, don't take this as me bashing on you or anything like that, but I'm not sure that I completely buy into this, and the reason for that is because I think the industry as a whole kind of started moving away from a whole lot of classic 90s-isms, starting at around 1995 or so. I mean, true, it, it took some companies longer than others, but it, it's just all of the negativity that... And, the things that I associate with 90s, you know, the overkill of everything, a lot of that had been kind of escorted to the door, so to speak, about 1995, 1996, and around there. And I think the industry's identity at large was not exactly the 90s in the pejorative sense, starting around 1995, 96, which I think was about the time Kingdom Come came out. I think it came out in 1996. And, I mean, if look, if somebody was just not fond of what was going on in the industry at the time, DC especially, and then here comes Kingdom Come, and maybe it served as, I don't just a breath of fresh air, maybe? I can see where they have fond memories of it, but, I mean, it's just at the same time, those are not the memories that, that I have of, you know, how things went in the 90s. So, just take that for whatever you think it's worth. To get back into his email, though. Third, in the last 30 or 40 years, we have this obsession with tearing heroes down. What do Watchmen, Dark Knight, and Kingdom Come have in common? They all tear down the concept of a superpowered protector. For all I know, it started before 1986, but somewhere along the line, we became fixated on taking that perfect hero and corrupting him or her or showing how imperfect he or she is. Furthermore, for some reason, writers like Alan Moore and Frank Miller seem to think the only way to do this is to do a huge, bombastic, apocalyptic story. Have you ever read the? Have you ever had the pleasure of reading Moore's Twilight of the Superheroes proposal? It's a real gas. I'm going to put your your email on pause here, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about this because I've sort of got a a theory about this kind of thing myself. 
basically, if you read, if you were to read Kingdom Come or Watchmen or Dark Knight, to some degree, Dark Knight, all of those for, and just either at, either for the first time or else try like hell to to just kind of have your new reader goggles on when you reread them. What you find is that they're they're pretty much self-contained. And so you don't need to have read anything prior to... There is nothing to have read before Watchmen. And I don't care what fucking miniseries they've published since then. There is no prequel to Watchmen. There's nothing that you need to read that takes place before Watchmen. There's nothing you need to read that takes place after Watchmen. Everything you need to know about Watchmen is contained in those 12 comics. And to some degree or another, I think the same thing is true of The Dark Knight and Kingdom Come, but especially Watchmen. And so if you're some snooterati, fucking hipster, New York Times book critic, then that is actually, it's very friendly to you. You don't have to contend with decades upon decades of continuity and story and motivation. And basically, I think that the real reason that the the mainstream, the straights, the civilians, whatever, whatever you want to call them, why they tend to gravitate towards those those three stories, Watchmen, Dark Knight, and Kingdom Come, is is because they're self-contained, right? They don't know the awesome of the Joker's Laughing Fish two-part story from Detective Comics by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers, right? They don't know jack fucking shit about that. And that's part of the main run of Detective Comics, and reading main runs of comics is is simply beneath a book critic. And so, but stuff like Watchmen, Dark Knight, Kingdom Come, those were all their own miniseries. And not only that, they were all, to some degree, their own self-contained stories. And that is easier for some fucking dipshit book critic to get his arms around than reading, I don't know, 200 issues of Avengers and trying to tell you what what the high points were, the low points were, all of that. And so... That's just the way that I feel about it. And so, you know what, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think the fact that those those works, those three works, are so accessible, notwithstanding the fact that, yes, they do tear down the entire concept of, su- of uh, superheroes, I'm not arguing that, but I'm just saying the fact that they're so accessible, that's what makes it work for, for the uh, fucking book critics and stuff. So, anyway... Anyway, getting back into Tom's email, he writes, And for some reason, Batman always represents humanity's grit in these stories, or something. Never mind that Superman's mission is debated and discussed by the, wor- by the greatest of world leaders, either because they want to live up to his example or their egos have made them paranoid about his power. And Batman is debated by a team of psychologists who are then going to fight over who gets to make bank when he publishes the paper on the whack job. And this is coming from a person who is a Batman fan. I'm going to put your your email back on pause here and say that's one of those things that's always sort of bothered me too that generally there seems to want to be this I don't know this tendency to deconstruct Superman over and against or maybe put Superman's philosophies in conflict with Batman I'm I'm not actually I'm not really even sure how how best to put this into words but I guess what I'm saying is it's Superman who gets second-guessed while Batman 
Eh, just not quite as much. And it bothers me really on on a multitude of levels. And one obvious reason for that is I don't really think of Batman as an altruistic character. I don't think of him as a heroic character. Honestly, to me, Batman is a vigilante. And I don't see where where what he does is... I don't know. Like I said, I just don't think it's altruistic. All right, He does what he does because he needs, psychologically needs to do it. Whereas Superman, this is true altruism because... He could take over the entire planet tomorrow, and literally nobody would be able to stop him. But he doesn't. He only uses his power to help other people. He never uses it for his own gain. And honestly, when people say that Superman doing what he does is not an act of heroism, I guess that's eye of the beholder. But what you what's not open to debate is that what Superman does is more altruistic than Batman ever dreamed of being. And honestly, that's just the way I feel about it. And the fact that Batman always... he I guess he's always used as the surrogate for all of humanity in these sorts of stories. Kingdom Come specifically, to some degree, but Kingdom Come... It just, it just fucking bothers me, you know? And honestly, I mean... I'm getting to a point in my in my fandom where I just really fucking resent Batman. Uh, I it just the character. Yeah, he's good. He, there are a lot of you know cool Batman stories and stuff out there. But honestly, you know the way that he's treated by writers, the way he's treated by fans, the way he's treated by the fucking civilians. I mean, guys, he ain't all that, you know. And it just fucking bother there's that obviously but then there's also the fact that when you take everything else away from batman and i mean now his true origins he's basically the shadow but less so you know batman or the shadow is what batman thinks he is you know and now keep in mind i've read a shitload of shadow stories over the years and so you know to me when it comes to just darkness they come no higher than the shadow. I mean, yeah, Batman thinks he's dark, and that's sort of cute, but no, the shadow is darkness, you know? And it's not really up for debate how much of Batman was pretty much just taken directly from the shadow. And, I don't know, it's just... It's it just, it's aggravating. It really is. And so, I guess, you know what, anything more than that, I'm probably just going to go on a fucking rants. So let's just get back into it. Um, back into uh, Tom's email. He writes, finally, and I apologize for going on so long here. Oh, dude, don't. I, I love long emails. You know, I do. I love them. I think they're great. So, uh, keep them coming. Um, but anyway, Tom writes, finally, and I apologize for going on so long here. The reason Kingdom Come and Watchmen and Sandman and Dark Knight and all the other superhero and non-superhero comic stories... No, they're not graphic novels, sorry, Tom writes, are held in such high regard is because they've never been out of print. That sounds simplistic, but think about it. They sold like crazy and were critical darlings and then were made always available. They are the comics equivalent of that show or movie rerunning in perpetuity. I love the Shawshank Redemption and think it's a great movie, but 
its reputation certainly isn't hurt by the thousand thousands of airings it, it it's had on TNT. And you know what? I'm gonna put the email on pause real quick, for, just for a minute to say, you know what? That's a that's a really good fucking point, actually. I have to wonder the fact that at least Kingdom Come, Watchmen, and Dark Knight—the fact that they've all been in print continuously—I just gotta wonder, you know, how has that affected their long-term, I don't know, historical viability? You know, it's that's a that's a, you know what that's actually a really good fucking point. I I don't know, but it, you can't really you can't really argue though that. The fact that these things have never really gone out of print hasn't had some sort of influence over, I don't know, how prolific they seem to be on these fucking top ten lists. It's a good question, actually. I don't know the answer to that. Anyway, but get back into his email. Stories like this are why I hate best of compilations from the press, because if they're not ignoring superheroes altogether, they're they're going to the same stories every single time. And don't get me wrong, the examples I've given are good, even great. And I read plenty of stuff that's non-caped, but if we're going to talk characters who have stood the test of time for 40, 60, even 75 years, we've got to mix it up a little. And dude, I couldn't fucking agree more. And in fact, I'm going to be talking about that, revisiting that very thing in just a few minutes from a different angle. But yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be talking about that very kind of thing in, in just a bit. So... Next up, this is an email that comes from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime, dated March the 16th and entitled Green Lantern Rebirth, Resurrection of a Horn Dog. Prime writes, Hey Magnus, this email won't be as massive as the one from before. <laughs> Jeez, and that one was fucking massive. Not, not complaining. I'm just saying that, dude, that thing was a fucking epic. But anyway, this email won't be as massive as the one from before. Still, at the time of writing this email, making even more notes for a DC Presents cartoon, God help us, given the scope and size of the DC universe, I'm not lacking on even more things to draw on and work with. And by all means, fucking send it over. Anyway, enough of that, and let's get on to Green Lantern Rebirth. There's a funny little bit that adds to the retcon told in the story, as in the Dark Stars book when Donna Troy learned of Hal's actions, she said that she knew there had to be more to it than what she'd been told. So it turns out she was right on that. And I'm going to put this on pause and say, dude, I did not know that. I had no idea that was that that was in there. And I'm not even sure which issue it's in, but it's like the minute you said that, I remembered reading that. And yeah, uh, it's probably, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those weird... I, I kind of want to compare it to the members of Fuck, and now I'm blanking on... Now I'm blanking on it, but that sort of secret society cabal uh, from the Marvel Universe consisting of Professor X, um, Doctor Strange, and uh, Iron Man, they're actually visible uh, hanging out together in one panel of... I think it was the um, Kree-Skrull War. I think that was it. It was in some fucking major crossover, right? And... um, Obviously, that was written long before... Are they called the Illuminati now? Is that it? Well, whatever. Whatever they're called. I think it's the Illuminati. But whatever they're called. That was written long before Brian Michael Bendis dreamed up that whole concept of the Illuminati. Or I think it was 
Bendis, somebody fucking dreamed it up, and I thought it was Bendis, but now I'm actually starting to second-guess myself, and I'm rambling. It's boring. To get back into it, though, yeah, it, that's kind of what it reminds me of. Uh, you know, but I do remember reading something like that, and I swear to think it was Dark Star, so yeah, I think you're probably right. But anyway, yeah, good catch, actually. I would never have thought to connect those two, but I can't say you're wrong, so yeah, good catch, uh, good catch. Anyway, get back into his email. I've read this story and enjoyed it. I got into reading DC Comics in 2007, which was already a weird time for their comics as it was after Infinite Crisis. Boy, I'll say it was a weird time. As it was after Infinite Crisis, and they were a bit unsure what they wanted to do. Dan DiDio, I'm sure, was pushing for a reboot, but they still had the good sense to keep that from happening. Seriously. Dan DiDio might, a good salesman, might be a good salesman of his ideas, but it seems he's terrible at organizing things. Or at least doesn't care for a reboot to make sure that it doesn't have elements that make the entire premise of a five-year timeline void. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Damian Wayne. I'm going to put this on pause and say, you know what? I swear to think that I've talked about this in a previous episode. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but my opposition to the New 52, believe it or not, is actually twofold. First, I just don't like what they've done with Superman. Period. End of story. Now, if any anybody listening to this, if you dig what's happening right now with Superman, you're loving it, and you think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, dude... Don't take it personally. I'm not trying to ruin your enjoyment of this. I'm happy. Dude, I'm fucking... I'm jealous. All right? Don't you think I would love to be able to read new Superman comics and get something out of it? Dude, I wish I was you. All right? So, you know, you tell me who won this pissing contest. You get to read new Superman comics and love it anytime you want. So, you know, like I said, don't take this as me bashing on you or trying to ruin your good time or anything. I'm just saying that I don't get into that. It's not my thing. And I kind of wish that it was, but it's not, and that's the hand that we've been dealt, so no sense crying about it. I just don't like it. But number two, I also don't like the fact that this isn't really a reboot, you know? Certain characters have gotten the mother of all retcons, and I think even Superman, you could fairly well say, was in fact rebooted. But this isn't a universe-wide fucking reboot. It just wasn't. And... You know, I realize that Grant Morrison was telling, you know, his big Damian Wayne opus, and isn't that fucking cool? And I realize that Jeff Johns was up to his balls and, you know, Green Lantern stories and all this other stuff. And, you know, DC didn't want to scrape all that stuff off. To which I say, you know, I just say fuck you to that. Look, the fact that... Crisis on Infinite Earths happened. For as cool as Crisis is, the long-term legacy, I think, of Crisis was royally butt-fucking the DC Universe. They never completely recovered from Crisis. All right? Had Crisis basically ended, and then universe-wide, DC rebooted all of their titles all at the same time, and then... <clears throat> You're getting in on the ground floor of the DC Universe right from the start. I think things would have gone very fucking different. But that's not what's happened. Certain characters weren't rebooted after Crisis. And some characters were rebooted after Crisis. Some characters weren't rebooted after Crisis, but they don't remember Crisis. Some characters weren't rebooted or 
weren't rebooted after Crisis, like Wally West, for example, and they remember Crisis. Certain characters were rebooted after Crisis, and they remember Crisis somehow, like Superman. Just on and on and on, all right? And it was just fucking incoherent, right? They had this story that they wanted to tell, and they had certain objectives that they wanted to achieve, but they didn't have a blueprint going forward for what things were going to be like. And you know what? Maybe that wasn't Marv Wolfman's responsibility, necessarily, but somebody should have stepped up to the plate and been a fucking leader on this and said, guys, if we continue on the way that we're going right now, where certain characters are not affected by crisis at all, even though they fucking well should be, and other characters like the Justice Society are completely fucked up now because of crisis, if we continue on with this and don't do something about it in advance, plan for this now, we're going to be facing a fucking disaster. If somebody had done that, I think that really people would think of the entire DC universe as sort of not necessarily different eras or stages or phases. They would think of it as basically being one continuous story. Hear me out. You've got all of the pre-crisis stuff that with crisis, you could say maybe still happened in an alternate universe, but then crisis came along and fucked everything up. And now we're starting over again from ground zero. It doesn't necessarily nullify your previous collecting history. It simply gives you a stopping point, if you want. And then that would have been it. And honestly, the fact that something like that didn't happen with Flashpoint, which was, I think, arguably the better place to have something like that, that kind of, you know, restarting the timeline sort of a thing. I mean, like I said, look, I can appreciate the fact that Grant Morrison and Jeff Johns were, you know, doing their thing, but dude... The way that things happened, which is to say putting the entire Green Lantern history into some kind of bullshit five-year timeline, obviously doesn't work. If we know nothing else, we know that, right? It's just kind of impossible for me to think that somehow, basically everything from Emerald Dawn up to everything going on with, I don't know, I don't even remember. Well, I guess uh, War of the Lanterns. All of that shit could have been folded into an entire five-year history with Green Lantern. I don't fucking buy it. And obviously, I'm not the only one who doesn't buy the five-year timeline for Batman. It just doesn't fucking work. And I think, ultimately, that is the New 52's undoing. You know, that's where I have to just say, you know what? The DC Universe is fucked now and forevermore. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's just fucking move on. And it fucking breaks my heart because I consider myself to be fundamentally a DC guy. And so that's that stuff. Anyway, and I could just go on and on and on with this. So I'm just going to get back in the email and just say, and on violence and such in comics, it has its place. Though with some writers and such, it seems to be more forefront than they need it to be. Sorry this email is pretty short, but really didn't have much to say this time around. And like I said, my list isn't done yet. Till all are one. Fan fanboy must prime. Dude, prime. Don't even don't even worry about it. Long emails, short emails. I don't care, dude. They're all they're all good. They're all welcome. By all means, keep sending them. So that's that's great. The next uh, email, the third and final email, comes from uh, Professor Allen. Now, for those of you who don't know, Professor Allen is sort of the uh, grand poobah of the relatively geeky podcast network. He hosts the Quarterbin podcast. He co-hosts the Shortbox Showcase. And his uh, daughter, Emily, uh, hosts Uncovering the Bronze Age. 
the uh, the uh, Quarterbend podcast, it has one of the most unique and original uh, concepts that I've ever heard of for a podcast. Basically, uh, the good professor goes through his entire history, his history, sorry, his entire collection. He goes through his entire collection. He finds the books that he paid no more than 25 cents for, basically the stuff he got out of Quarterbends. And he just talks about those on, uh, on his show. It can be anything at any time. The rule is he cannot have paid more than 25 cents for it. It's just a fucking awesome show. And uh, if you're not listening to it, you fucking well should be. So, anyway, I love it. It's hilarious. Anyway, to get into his email, though, uh, this email is entitled Big Book Reports, and it was sent on March the 18th. And Professor Allen writes, Trennis, I'm really enjoying the big, re- uh, the big book reports. As a matter of fact, I'm enjoying the broad range of stuff you cover on the show. There's a you-never-know-what-you're-going-to-open-up-next uh, vibe to the, whole, t- uh, to the whole show. I like uh, different series that you have going on all at the same time. I'm going to put your email on pause here and say, thank you very much, Professor. I really appreciate that. And especially you, you kind of have a... Uh, you never know what you're gonna what you're gonna get next type of show yourself. Uh, there is a reason for that. Um, first of all, everybody has what I call, uh, I guess you could say, the fanboy muse, right? Where you kind of read the the stuff that your fanboy muse is taking you to, and that's what you're geeking out on right now, you know, and that's kind of the way my fanboy muse works. I mean, there are days where it's nothing but the shadow all the time. I want to read shadow pulps. I want to read shadow comics. I want to listen to shadow radio. The whole thing. And I'm just binging on the shadow. Then there are other times where it's it's Burn Age Superman or Bust. All I want to do is read Burn Age uh, Superman stories. And, and I don't know, just obsess over how fucking awesome the post-crisis Superman is, you know? And that's all I want to do. That's, you know, and there's plenty plenty of those times, right? Then I get into other things where it's all about Wally West, the Flash, or maybe it's <clears throat> maybe it's all about Spider-Man or just whatever, you know, whatever it is that I've got going on. And and I guess what I'm saying here is that I've got a very neurotic fanboy sensibility to where I go from a bunch of different subjects at any time. I could never do an index type of show, right? You know how Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor do From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast? And they're, as far as I can tell, they're pretty much definitive where they talk about everything that happens with the post-crisis Superman, the From Crisis to Crisis era of Superman. And as much as I like those guys, as much as I just fucking love their show, I could never in a million fucking years do that. Because honestly, I would get burnt out on it way too fast. You know, and, you know, sure, it would be a pleasure to do a show where I talk all about, I don't know, the Mark Wade run on The Flash, right? And just how fucking awesome it was. But, I mean, dude, I probably would make it through two, maybe three years worth of stories. You know, not two or three years worth of podcast episodes, but make it through two or three years worth of comics. And then 
you know, my fanboy muse would just take me someplace else. And it it's just the kind of thing I'd have to force and just sort of grind out uh, to keep the show coming out on a month, uh, on even a monthly basis, probably. And it's, I, I, I just can't do that, you know? So that's the reason I set up the type of format that I have where I'm constantly bouncing around from, you know, subject to subject to subject, because that's just the way that my fanboy muse works. And so, you know, I keep talking about this mythical big file of stuff that I want to talk about. Right now, it goes up to 372 episodes worth of stuff that I want to talk about, right? And I've reset this thing a thousand fucking times because what my fanboy muse does is, you know, it takes me someplace I wasn't necessarily expecting. I'm like, okay, dude, I am cracking out on this stuff right now. What I want to do is record episodes about this stuff right now and then, you know, get that put in my hopper and then it's going to come along. And at the time that it comes out, I'm going to sound just fucking great because I'm so excited to be reading this stuff, so interested in it and fixated on it. And it's going to hopefully it's going to come through in in the show, you know, so I've reset this thing a thousand fucking times specifically because of that. And so that's just how I've done it. So, now as to the big book reports, I always wanted to talk about those, and the reason for that is because I don't know of any other podcast that's talking about the big books. There may be some, or there may be one out there, um, and I just don't know about it, but all I'm saying is, as far as I know, which is not at all definitive, nobody else is podcasting about the big books. And so... I'm going to dive into that, you know, I, you know, I, I want that to kind of be something that me and I knew I needed a co-host, but I wanted to be some, I wanted that to be something for me and my co-host for those episodes to talk about, right? And when I was, when I started putting all this shit together, I thought, well, who in the podcasting community do I know about that likes kind of offbeat comics and they're a little bit more off the beaten trail a little bit and would probably appreciate sort of non-fiction comics right and honestly chris honeywell was the first last and only choice that i ever had you know uh it felt like you know he could probably he could probably work it out so that he and i record together once a month or maybe once every other month he could probably finagle that into a schedule i knew for sure he would have perspectives on all or most of these subjects and honestly as i've said before i've gotten the idea he kind of gets stuck in a rut now and then reading all you know comics that i don't know he's necessarily as interested in and i thought you know just for him it might be kind of fucking fun to read you know big books where it's all about urban legends or it's all about freaks or conspiracies or death or, or whatever else he'd probably get a fucking kick out of that right and so you know, apart from the fact that I need a second voice on on those shows, those big book reports, it makes all the sense in the world for it to be Chris Honeywell specifically, because, like I said, for all the reasons I just mentioned, it you know he needs it too, you know, and so I'd like to think that you know he enjoys it. It's not he's not just slumming it with me that he actually enjoys these shows himself. So that's what I'm hoping anyway. Anyway. Get back into uh, the good professor's email. He writes, I understand that you're not going to cover the big book of martyrs, and it's probably the right call. The only bummer is that is that's the only one of them I've ever 
uh, actually read. That them's the breaks. Keep up the good work, Professor Allen. Um, yeah, Professor. Um, look, it's just it's one of those things where that is so specifically religious and so specifically Christian, and to some degree or another, so specifically. I don't know. I don't know if I want to use the word partisan, but maybe I don't know, potentially potentially divisive to people that it just kind of felt like, you know, I personally am actually very interested in uh, the Big Book of Martyrs. I think it's a great big book, but is that really appropriate for my podcast? I mean, from the start, I wanted to have a sort of non-political and non-religious and I guess basically as widespread appeal as I possibly can on my show. So ideally, whatever my political views are, if I even have any, or whatever my religious views are, if I even have any, somebody listening to this show wouldn't know what those are, you know, if all they do is listen to the show. And now if you check out my Facebook, well, you you maybe will figure that out. But if you, if all you do is listen to, is listen to this to this podcast, you don't know where I'm coming from on a religious basis. You don't know where I'm coming from on a political basis. And so there's hopefully less to turn you off. And, you know, basically, I just want to, I want to have a show where anybody can listen to it and just enjoy what they say, or, or rather what they hear, just enjoy what they hear. And, you know, I can foresee circumstances where I may have to talk about political subjects just to review a particular comic book. Not to use this as my bully pulpit and all this, you know, basically tell you, if you disagree with me, tell you how, you know, what a big piece of shit you are or anything. I don't mean it like that. I just mean that sometimes politics comes up in comics, and if I'm going to talk about those comics, that may mean having to talk at least about the politics of that particular issue. But, you know, otherwise, I don't want to have a like a big bully pulpit type of political show that pretends to be a comic book show. I want to have a comic book show, and if that means, you know, maybe once every 100 fucking thousand episodes, talking about very briefly one one political issue and then moving away from it, never to talk about that ever again, that's the kind of show I like listening to, you know? I don't like, you know, even if they come from the same point of view as uh, as me, politically, I don't like listening to that stuff when I listen to people... Uh, you know, do their shows and stuff. So, you know, it's not an issue of, you know, you piss off 50% of your audience. I think I, you know, I think what you do is you actually piss off 100% of your audience. There's the 50% that disagrees with you, and now they're pissed off. And then there's the 50% that they 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 agree with you, and they want to hear something that they don't already know. And, the, and, you know, a bunch of political bullshit that they already agree with, they already know that stuff. So now they're pissed off too. I just don't see a win there you know so and and as far as like i said religion same type of a thing i i just don't think it would be appropriate to go into the big book of martyrs you know and it seems like you seem to understand why but anyway but in case you know any of you listening didn't know why i'm never going to talk about the big book of martyrs on this show well that's why i mean i'm very interested in that subject but that doesn't mean everybody is and this is one of those things that is it's so far away from my usual subjects and specifically it's so particularly religious 
then I think it, you know, it does actually kind of cross that line of having to be overtly religious in order to put it in any kind of context. And I just don't want to, I don't want to take the risk of doing that. So anyway, Professor, I'm glad you understand. And um, I appreciate your support and all that. And I, dude, I just appreciate not just your email, but everybody's email. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate all of you taking the time to uh, write to me. And if you want to, um, if you want to send me an email and have it read on mic, you can reach me at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. That's T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Just send me a message. And all correspondence gets read on mic. Unless, unless you say you don't want it to be read on mic. And then I won't do that. But otherwise, everything I read, uh, or rather everything I, I receive, I will read on mic. So, also, I would appreciate it if... Um, you listeners could just uh, take a moment to log into iTunes and file uh, hopefully positive reviews, but really any kind of review uh, for me in iTunes. And the reason for that is because it's just going to help my show be more visible in iTunes. And basically that's just going to expand my audience, at least theoretically. So I'd really appreciate it if all of you could um, could uh, take the time to do that. So and for those of you who don't know, my podcast feed is named Trentus, uh, or rather Two True Freaks presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. And so I have a feed on, up there from uh, my old Lipson account, but um, that's that's pretty much uh, gone. Uh, I don't listen to, or rather, I don't list new things on that on that uh, on that old Lipson feed. Everything comes through now on uh, the new Two True Freaks feed. So if you want to file positive iTunes reviews for me, search for Two True Freaks Presents Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and it should be pretty easy to find. And speaking of iTunes reviews, um, I've actually got one, and uh, it's actually kind of short, so I'll go ahead and just toss it in here. It says, uh, it's a five-star rating. It says, Great Podcast. This is written by Ditko66, dated March the 14th. And Ditko66 writes, I'm really enjoying Trennis's podcast. He gives a very raw and honest opinion, and I find that very refreshing. And thank you, Ditko66. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, write that, I- that iTunes review, and especially for the, five t- uh, the five-star review. Definitely appreciate that. It's, you know, it-, it makes a lot of difference. And so to all the rest of you, if you could just follow Ditko66's example <clears throat> and, um, and uh, just... Uh, submit some more iTunes reviews I'd really I'd really appreciate that so and otherwise I think that's pretty much it for me this time so I think that's pretty much that bye everybody and I will see you next week okay so I think that's just about the end of that Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network you can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. 
You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.